All right, so we, we've been, like I said, we've been talking about this, um, this idea of going all in, and I'd like to, to explore what it looks like to go beyond pain. Because to follow Jesus is many times to be confronted with the truth that this is not a pain-free life. And because of that, maybe it just has always fascinated me to, to hear of people's abilities to, um, to move beyond their own thresholds. I was recently reading a book called The Peak Performance, how people are able to perform at their, their highest levels. And it was, it was two scientists who ended up researching just the top performers all over the world in different fields of study, whether it was sports or business or whatever it would be in their field of expertise. And one of the things that they encountered was this, um, this phenomenon that they, would, they, would, they became aware of. And it occurred in 2006. It was something that, that kind of highlighted this. There was a man named Tom Boyle, and this, I'd just like to read this to you. There was a man named Tom Boyle who was driving down the street in Tucson, Arizona when his wife screamed out of agony after witnessing a car collide over a cyclist. And it was a Camaro that ran over this cyclist. And it stopped with this, what turned out to be an 18-year-old kid, pinned down underneath the car. And so the wife just, just screamed at what had happened and, and pointed out what had happened to, to her husband, Tom Boyle. And so he stopped the car, he got out of the car, went into the intersection, and he, he went to where the car was. And I thought I would just read this account. It says he stopped the car and ran out to the inside of the incident. And he heard Kyle, Kyle Holtrust, and he yelled out from underneath the car, get me out, get me out, it hurts. Get me out. Kyle was alive. But he was trapped underneath the crushing weight of the car and without thinking, Boyle, began lifting the front end of the Camaro. And Kyle continued to scream, higher, higher. Boyle kept lifting. And after what seemed like hours, Boyle heard Kyle gasp, and he, he said, okay, it's, it's off me, it's off me, but I can't move, I, I can't move my legs. Get me out, please, please get me out. And while continuing to lift the Camaro, Boyle shouted for the driver that had hit Kyle, who was now watching in a complete daze from the side of the road, unable to help. And he's stunned and shocked, is what the account said. He says, I yelled at him like four or five times, and then he finally reached underneath, and he pulled Kyle out. And Boyle told the Arizona Daily Star, the driver, he says, must have been in shock, and he couldn't seem to come out of it. He was stunned at what he had just done, what had just occurred. And you get the picture, right? And after this kid gets drugged from underneath the car, Tom Boyle lowers the 3,700 pounds and lets go of the Camaro. And just for perspective, just so we, some of us may not know how heavy that is, we could imagine it, but the world record for deadlifting, which is the act of uh, grabbing a barbell and lifting it up just up to one's hips or just above their knees, is 1,102 pounds. And this man, Tom Boyle, had just lifted 3,700 pounds. Um, it was one of those incidents that uh, was incredible, obviously, but these occurrences, believe it or not, of superhuman strength have happened enough for scientists to take notice of them. Some of us may or may not have heard of a woman who, who saw her father pinned down, and she stepped in and did something very similar so that her father could escape and survive. 
And scientist says this, this is actually something that the body is capable of doing. And they said they, they've, they've come to call it something. They, they didn't know what other term to call it. And so they said, well, superhuman strength just sounds too movie-like. So they called it hysterical strength. And I thought of that as it's kind of funny. They, they, they go hysterical. It's almost like an expression of the Hulk, right? Where things just take over. And it says, according, they said, according to Javier Provencio, who's the medical doctor at, uh, of Neurological Intensive Care Unit, the ICU, at the Cleveland Clinic, says, in ordinary circumstances, the body shuts down well advanced of its limits. Now, fear, fatigue, and pain act as a protective mechanism. And these sensations signal to us that if we continue this enormous challenge, there is, uh, there's a good chance we'll fail and injure ourselves. And so we have a governor within. And it shuts us down. Some believe that's the product, by the way, the function of our ego. That our ego is what actually speaks up for us and says, no, 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 no. Anytime we're threatened. And it tells us either to flee or to escape or to stop. It's, uh, they say that this is a mechanism within us that is meant for our survival. And so what happens when someone has hysterical strength? What is it that causes them to shut down their governor? It says, what happens in these moments is that people focus on a self-transcending purpose or a purpose greater than themselves. And they become capable of more than they ever thought possible. It says um, something simultaneously happens. Uh, they get gripped with something, in, many times in life or death situations, that is far larger than their own self-protective importance. And so they say, you know what happens? The ego is diminished for the cause that's right in front of them. And when that occurs, internally something switches. And all of a sudden, the limits that would protect them get put aside for a moment or two so that that, whatever it needs to be done, can be done. It says, uh, it's an amazing capacity that the body has, the human psyche has, to move beyond their pain. And we, don't, we, we, we know this to be true, I think. Uh, we may not all the time have seen, we may not know anybody that lifted a car. We may not feel capable of doing that, and perhaps some of us actually truly aren't. But we, we see this play out, not just in moments of hysterical strength. You know when we see this? We see this when we see someone pursue a dream they are passionate about. We see it when they endure pain as they minimize themselves and elevate their pursuit. We see this. And it inspires us. We, we see this in sports. We see this in countless examples of athletes who sacrifice years of their lives in pursuit of the championship, like a three-peat NBA team made up of superstars who can all by themselves shine. But they decide to diminish their own ego so they can play together. Oh, I don't know. I'm maybe talking about the Warriors. <laughs> because they want something that's bigger than just one of them. We see this. We see this uh, with our servicemen. We see this when we hear heroic stories of either police officers putting themselves in harm's way to protect the innocent and vulnerable, 
or firefighters running into a fire-filled building, rescuing those who are trapped inside. Ah, we see this. We see this show up everywhere. You know where we see it actually most common, more common than we might know, and we might actually take it for granted far too often? We see it when we ourselves, or we see somebody who is truly in love. We know it because when we are in love, or when we're willing to love somebody, it's, it's amazing the things we're willing to tolerate. We just finished a eight-week premarital course with our church, and there were about 18 couples walking through it. And to see them, to see life through their eyes as they look into each other, it's, it's an amazing thing. When, when, when we speak of challenges relationally, they, they don't know what we're talking about. Because the willingness to tolerate small annoyances is very great. The willingness to play second fiddle is extraordinarily high. The willingness to risk humiliation and to be able to declare one's love for another, it's very high. To move beyond the pain. See, love, I think, most clearly demonstrates what it might look like to move beyond pain. Because, um, you know, they used to say, I used to believe that the, what do they say, the, the best things in life are free. You ever hear that saying? I, ever hear that song? There are many songs written, right? The best things in life are free. I, I used to believe that. And I remember, I remember growing up, my, my father would seek to teach me different life lessons, and I would watch commercials in between basketball games or sports or whatever, and I would see they would have sales or Saturday morning cartoons. They had sales at, you know, Safeway or whatever, and if you get this, you get this for free. And I would say, Dad, 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 can we go? Can we go? Can we get? Because that's free. That's free. All you got to do is buy this box of cereal, and I get something for free, right? And I remember him just sitting there next to me, and, and he would say, Son, Nothing is free, right? I'd be like, no, 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 dad, dad, no, they're saying it's free. Look, it says free, free. We just got to go. All you got to do is get in the car with me, drive me there, give me the money, I'll take care of the rest, right? And he would say, no, son, son, you don't understand. Nothing is free. And I remember I would come home from, you know, sports or whatever, and different, I would get a jersey or something that the group would fundraise for, or somebody would, you know, and he would want me to know, son, I would be like, dad, look at this, this is pretty sweet, isn't it? And, and I would wear it, I, a lot of times, especially my baseball uniform, I would wear it to sleep, right, before the game, because I was just so excited for the next morning. I remember at basketball, same thing, and he would say, son, you got to take care of this. And I'd be like, I know, I know, but it's mine. He goes, no, 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 son, somebody... Somebody paid for that. I know it was free to you, but it doesn't mean it was free. And I would say, well, then, Dad, who paid for it? And he would sit there, and I could see his wheels turning, and I knew he didn't know who paid for it, you know? <laughs> and so I felt like I got him, like, finally, after years of trying. And he would say, son, just because you don't know who paid for it doesn't mean somebody didn't. And that stuck with me. I used to think, yeah, you know, love is free. But if any of us have been in a truly honest relationship, we know, if anything, love is the most expensive thing we could ever pursue. The price is high. 
See, the payment for love, you know what it is? Always. True love. Not the emotion-filled one or the convenient one or the one where everything is going our way. Not the one where there's complete harmony and compatibility and zero arguments and they always see it our way. Not that one. That, I don't know what that is. <laughs> That's a movie. <laughs> but true love. You know what the payment is? Sacrifice. Always. Always. It just doesn't exist without it. It's impossible to love without being willing to move beyond pain. And this is why this is the time of year where I so appreciate what we get to celebrate here together because it's a time when we're encouraged to recognize just how deeply God loves humanity. He, he, Easter is a reminder. You know what it is? It's a reminder that Jesus loves, loved beyond the pain. He didn't shrink back. And his cross is able to help us move beyond ours. But the choice we need to make is the choice his disciples needed to make 2,000 years ago. And that is the choice of will we connect ourselves to his cross or not? And there's, um, there's these three episodes I'd love to explore here together. It's found in your handout in Mark the Gospel of Mark, and um, if you open up your handout, we'll just walk through different episodes that kind of demonstrate what Jesus was trying to get at with those who followed him. He was at the height of popularity when he began to clarify exactly why he came. And we're told in Mark 8, which is the first account that's put on your handout, it says, and he, being Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. If you look at this account, Jesus points out several things. He says, the Son of Man is going to suffer, he's going to be rejected, he's going to be put to death, and on the other hand, side of it, be risen again. It, it's hard for us to completely understand. Now, on this side, we might say, you take this for granted. It has no surprising elements whatsoever. But to put ourselves in the shoes of those who were following him and seeing the enormous crowds gathering to hear him and seeing those who were sick being healed by him and hearing the words come out of his mouth filled with true authority and power, this, uh, it, was, it was just so countercultural. this description of what he was saying he was moving toward. See, it caught them off guard. It didn't just surprise them or startle them. No, it was completely different than anything they had expected. And if it caught them off guard, we, one thing is for certain, it would never surprise Jesus. We're told in verse 32 that he said this plainly. It's Mark's way of saying he stopped speaking in mystery or in parables or in illustrations. He said it directly. You could not mistake it. And upon hearing this, we're told Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. That word rebuke, ah, oh, that's, a, that's a powerful word. It's another way of saying is he corrected Jesus. I don't know if you've ever felt that way where we're walking through something. See, I think Peter's more like us than any one of the other disciples because 
I don't know if you've ever felt inclined to correct God. Or felt inclined to clarify, uh, no, I, I think you got this one wrong. Uh, Peter did. It's both startling and telling. I think Peter in many ways echoes the human desire. No. You're talking about suffering? No. In fact, no, you're too good of a man. No, 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 Jesus. Maybe us, sure. But not you. You're innocent. And we know this. There's nothing worse than seeing the innocent suffer unjustly. That truly is heartbreaking. And upon hearing Jesus share these words, Peter says, no, 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 no. No, that, 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 that just, you can't say that, Jesus. It's unspeakable. It's not simply a bad idea or sad news. It's completely outside of everything associated with you. What are you talking about? We know Jesus remained committed, unmoved by the human perspective of his faithful follower, his loyal friend, and he continued to move forward. He, Jesus, clarified actually what was truly going on within Peter, and we're told Mark continues to highlight these different moments in which Jesus wanted to make sure his disciples knew that he knew what was up ahead. And we're told in verse in Mark 9, it says, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. It's almost as if this is a, another way of saying, Mark's way of saying that Jesus strategically held a secret discussion with his disciples. It's one of those confidential ones where you might walk through an office building with maybe glass windows and glass doors and everyone's having a discussion. You know something pretty intense is going on. That's the environment Jesus is creating. He didn't want anyone to know. He wanted to make sure that he was absolutely clear with those he was sharing. This was an intimate setting. We're told that for he, and then he, got, he continues, for he was teaching his disciples he was seeking to illuminate and instruct and direct them. And he's saying to them, the Son of Man, I want you to understand, I know, I know you're captured by all this other stuff and all the popularity. I know, I know the crowds are an allure to you. I know it. But I want you to understand something. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. The very ones who are trying to prop us up you understand um, I'm going to give myself to their will and you know what's going to be their will will turn violent the crowd will go and come back with such a ferocious force they will kill him and when he is killed after three days he will rise but there's no getting around it Look at, if the first time Peter came out saying, no, 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 that's, what are you talking about? I mean, that's just so outside anything you know. That's just, I don't receive it. The second time Jesus would clearly explain what was happening, it says that they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. In their perspective, Jesus was, what, we, what he was saying was plain as day, but its meaning was clouded. 
And rather than lean in in this dire prediction to better understand it, they chose to remain silent in their confusion. I'm not sure if we've ever been with somebody who is clearly hurting, expressing grief, walking with a perpetual pain that no matter what is said, it will not go away. And no word can actually make it better. I don't know if we've ever been in that place. The disciples seem to find themselves in that place with Jesus. He was unmoved in his knowledge of what was up ahead. And you know what we see here? We see them, rather than leaning in and trying to be there, they do what we would all feel uneasy doing but be so tempted to do. They step back. I don't know how to respond. I don't know how to identify. I don't know what to say. And the relational disconnect and the loneliness and the cold of recognizing and realizing that Jesus and Jesus alone truly understood what he was walking through must have been severe. It's an interesting image we're given. Jesus is saying he's stepping toward and into a very painful future. The pain of his future causes his disciples to pull back, and his love for the disciples causes him to remain. Do we see it? It's an amazing picture. It's an amazing picture. Jesus resolves himself because of his love for those who did not even know how to respond to him to move forward and not let the pain deter him. This is remarkable if you really think about it. In Mark 10, we're told on a third occasion, and this would be truly the final occasion before he would move into, at least according to the Gospel of Mark, we're told that they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. The power of Jesus' words, this is what was happening. This is one of those occurrences again where Jesus, it's almost as if we would see the crowds gathering, and Jesus' popularity was just continuing to escalate. And he, they were making their way to Jerusalem. And so everyone was just in awe of this man the words and the life that flowed through him, the deeds that he's able to do, they, like we explored last week, there was no gap in what he said and what he did, and that created this deep reverence around him. And we're told that in the midst of this, all of the buzz and all of the attraction, Jesus decides, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm, he decides to tell the disciples, we're told here, exactly what's going to happen, and this is what he says. He says, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. This is where we're going. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, that is, the religious leaders and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, that is, the Romans, who have the authority to give capital punishment through the most gruesome means possible. And they will mock him 
and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after these days, he will rise again. After three days, he will rise again. It's almost as if he's saying, look, three different times, Jesus tells the disciples what's going to happen. Each time continuing to open up a little bit of the curtain behind what's actually going on. Don't get confused by everything going on around us. Don't get confused by the fads and the culture and the winds and the popularity and the accolations. Everything, don't let that distract you from what's actually going on. See, and, and then he, he well, you know what he does? He, he just, everything he said happened. In such detail, it's almost as if he had walked through it before he stepped into it in his mind. He knew what was up ahead. And as he says this, Mark says that the disciples, the first time, wanted to correct him the second time, didn't know how to respond the third time, says that in verse 35, look at this, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, uh, what do you want me to do for you? They said, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. <laughs> I don't know if we can understand this, Jesus had just told them what was up ahead. And they were so blind by everything going on. All they saw was glory. All they saw was a throne. All they saw was success. They didn't hear or see or acknowledge. They were right. There would be a throne. They're right, there would be glory. They just missed that the road would be incredibly painful. They just neglected to take into account how costly that throne would be. It's not uncommon for the human condition. We want the throne, we avoid the cross. This is true of them, if we're honest. It's true of us, we desire glory. We just don't want the pain. We long for the ascendancy to greatness, not knowing truly how challenging the price will be. Had they truly grasped the pain, I don't know. One doubts whether or not they would have even made the request. But Jesus knew exactly, eyes wide open, what he was stepping into. And I'm just going to continue to hammer this. So I think we need to know this. Jesus loves us and loves us beyond the pain of it. And his cross is able to help us move beyond ours. There's no question about it. See, these three episodes, they communicated plainly the purpose of his coming. But he didn't, you know what he didn't do? Jesus, you know what you don't see here? You don't see a man resigned with doom and gloom in his heart. You see somebody who is um, resolved, focused, uh, in John, he told the disciples, he says, you know what my food is? What, what energizes me? What renews me? It's to do the will of the one who sent me and to accomplish all of his works. That's what, that's what energizes me. That's what wakes me up in the morning. So what I'd like us to do is just to take this and consider a couple things. Just three simple thoughts. I'm just put the first one up there. You know what Jesus did? He knowingly did. 
Jesus embraced and absorbed the pain of humanity on the cross. At the end of the day, this is what he did. I, I don't know how else to put it. In other words, God, you know what God is not? He's not blind to the reality of how broken, hurting, or dark our world can be. He's not. He's not oblivious to it. He didn't protect himself from it. He didn't stay separated. He didn't, he didn't insulate himself. He didn't use all the privileges of his power and his resources to be, be disconnected from what was truly going on in the ground of our human existence. He, he did not do that. Uh, to put it another way, all of humanity was pinned under a weight no one could lift. And in his love for us, he decided to put that weight on his own back and to lift it. Do we understand this? He decided to absorb every single drop of brokenness, all the jagged edges, all the betrayal, all the sorrow, all the grief, all the wounds. He decided to do what no one else could do. Jesus stepped toward the cross for he knew that it would be the place where he would experience the worst of humanity. He would do this. He would do this. And see, I don't know where we might be at, but um, it's one thing for a criminal to experience such a judgment. It's a whole other thing for an innocent man to step into that place. I, I don't know that I would say that's the epitome of evil for innocence, pure innocence, perfect innocence to suffer. And, um, you know, this means a lot because, uh, the, how else do I say this? When we experience injustice, and when we have reasons to become angry, bitter, resentful, wounded, when we feel pinned down by life, pressed down, like that kid Kyle, who wants to yell out, help me, would you please help me? Would you please get me out? When we feel like life has stacked the deck against us, we need to remember that. We know the saying, right, that um, we have to walk in somebody's shoes before we understand what it's like. See, I don't know what our paths have taken us through, what painful roads we have walked. I know this. It might be true no one else understands. No other human being could understand. But Jesus can. And Jesus walked a road far far harder than we could ever fathom. And you know, he doesn't judge us or condemn us. He did what we could never do. He did what we could never do so that we are empowered. Because here's the deal. All that Jesus did on the cross is beautiful. It's wonderful. There are great words to hear. It's great memory to, to anchor ourselves in. But the reality is, listen, the cross was Jesus going all in for humanity. It was Jesus going all in. When he said he loved, he meant it. 
He didn't mean when we agree with him only or when we uh, declare his greatness only. He meant it when he was abandoned. He meant it when he was left alone. He meant it when he was mocked. He meant it when he suffered. He never stopped meaning it. The cross demonstrates that, which is great. But we have to know this. Listen, <laughs> that will not impact us unless we personalize it. And this is, second thought is personalizing Jesus' sacrifice is what transforms our soul. That could be great for somebody else, but unless it's great for, unless it's something he has done for me, nothing inside <laughs> Nothing in my life truly, 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 no matter, no matter how much we change our behavior, no matter how much we try to change our habits, or no matter how much we try to change our attitude, and we could try to be positive and put a grin on something that actually is so painful, no matter how much we do that. Listen, the only thing that will actually impact our soul, breathe life into us, and give us the capacity to rise again is when we say, Jesus died on the cross, not for humanity. He died for me. He experienced that pain for me. He stepped into that place for me. And I embrace it. And I receive it. And I love him for it. And when I yelled out, will you get me out of this, please? He's the one who responded. I see, I don't know if we've ever had a hard time with the fact that Jesus declared, he, I am the only way, the truth and life. I'm the only way to the Father. Sometimes that could make us bristle. You know what the reality is? You know what he's declaring? And I'm not the one who came up with this, but it's true. It's that he's the only one who responded to the cry of humanity. He's the only one who showed up. He's the only one who said, I'm here. I'm here. I hear you. I'm here. He's the only one. And it requires us to say, okay, this is, this is for me. You did this for me. You didn't do this for my neighbor. You didn't do this for whoever I might know. You didn't do this for my coworker. You did this for me. For me. You did this for me. And it may be that we have first stepped into that place 20 years ago. It may be that we might be considering stepping in that place today. But we have to know this. Listen, this is the gospel in the most clearest terms possible. Tim Keller put it this way. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. See, when we come to church, we love, we love to try our best to make sure that we don't put on the, the reality that I, I may be more sinful and flawed than I hope. I hope nobody notices. I hope nobody recognizes it. I hope nobody sees it. But the reality is to follow Jesus, to go all in with him, and to say, no, that wasn't for some, everybody else. That was for me. It's to declare something. It's to declare, ah, oh, uh, and there's something deeply wrong inside of me. And at the same time to declare, but your love and your grace abounds so much further than what's wrong. 
You took it all. It's like the antigen that removes the corrosive effects of sin. It is what allows us to unload, which, by the way, if we've ever felt distance from God, it may not be the only reason, but I think a lot of times, especially after having discussions with different people time and time again, it really isn't that we have somehow come to a point where God loves us less. It's that the things we do inflict brokenness and darkness spreads in our soul. You know what happens? It removes our ability to personalize his love. He loves us but we must be willing to receive it. And I say, yes, even me, Lord. Even me. I receive it. And I unload the weight on you. And I unload all of my shame and all of my guilt and all of my pain. I unload it on you. That is, in the most simplest terms possible, that is what the gospel is. Which means that if that's true, you know what also is true is that a heart ignited by Jesus' passion, when we connect ourselves to his passion, we will be able to move beyond our pain. When we embrace his cross in our lives, we tie ourselves to him. When we say, you are the king, as some songs say, you are the king of my heart. You are the throne, and I bow to it. You are the one that, um, your purpose is for my life is what ignites me. That is what I will tie myself to. You know what happens? You know, by the way, passion, literally, do we, do we know passion? It literally means to suffer for what we love. That when we are, the, the way we discover our passion is in our willingness to move beyond the pain of attaining it. That's how we know we're passionate about something. Jesus was incredible. This is why they call it the passion of Christ. He was willing to suffer for us, for you, for me. And this Christian life, by the way, it's not one that moves us into suffering like you know, every day we wake up and we say, all right, where can I suffer today? That, that would be bad. That would be sad. But I asked him to put this up there, and it's the last thing we're going to put up there. It says, we, let's, let's look what Hebrews says. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy, look at that, because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross. Why was it that he was able to move forward into it? Because of the joy awaiting him. Why was it that he was not deterred, that he decided even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, your will be done, not mine, God. Why? Because of the joy awaiting him. The joy, see, when we are ignited by what Jesus did on the cross, we discover the reality. He did it so we didn't have to. He did it so that we can discover the enormous joy on the other side of our pain. The reward on the other side of our pain. There's no escaping it. There's no distracting from it. There's no ignoring it. There's no pretending away from it. No, there's only one way, and the way is through it. And we don't do it because we love to suffer. We do it because we love the reward, the joy, the beauty. The other side of our pain is a legacy that fills our soul with gratitude. The other side of our pain is redemption. 
It's been said there are two pains in life. The pain of discipline or the pain of regret. Our life is not pain-free. But when we are ignited by Jesus, our life becomes regret-free. As we go all in. Not halfway. Not when it's convenient. We go all in. And the joy awaiting us. Well, no eye can see no ear has heard how wonderful it will be, Paul said. May that be the case for us. The moment we're going to receive our time of giving, a closing song, but I would love to just pray. And um, so, Lord, I thank you. I thank you, Jesus, that you are the one who well, you didn't step in naively. You didn't step in depressed, defeated. Your head wasn't in the clouds, but it wasn't overcome. You said that when we receive you, you give us your spirit. And so I pray, God, that even as we hear this closing song, you would help us not just maybe be reminded or encouraged or perhaps for the first time, truly clearly hear what you were willing to do for us. You were willing to go beyond the pain. I pray you help us also for our own sake, claim it. You did it for me. You did it so that I could move beyond mine. So I pray for your strength to flow, God. And I ask for your blessing. Help us go all in with you as you did for us. In Jesus' name.